fearless is really about being afraid of something, but finding a way to still face it. In the workplace, women are interrupted at a rate of three times more than men. Don't aim for perfectionism, aim for continual learning and growth. This is the Other Side of Adversity podcast, inspiring stories to fill your cup. I'm your host, Laura Massey, and welcome to the show. Our guest today is Jennifer Willey. Jennifer is a coach, consultant, and keynote speaker. She is the founder and CEO of Wet Cement, which helps people and organizations be fearless at work and in life. Her company offers training programs for diversity and inclusion, sales, communication, and leadership development. Today, I'm pleased to welcome to the show, Jennifer Willey. Thank you so much for being here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start off by telling our listeners a little about your background and where you're from. I grew up in Staten Island, New York. It's been an interesting journey. I started my first career as I was a certified fitness instructor and retired from that after 15 years. And I was a TV news anchor and reporter. And I spent about the last 20 years before I launched my own company, leading sales strategy and marketing for some of those digital brands that we all know and love like AOL, Yahoo, and WebMD. It has been a very interesting journey to fearlessness along the way. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of those jobs and your journey? A lot of it is what brought me to where I am now. And what happened for me is I think what happens to a lot of successful, intelligent, hardworking women, which is you start off on a path, which is what you think that you want to do. And then if you are one of those kind of women that people like working with or that always do a good job and because we're perfectionists, which we should not be. Everyone says, oh, I want her on my team. You just keep getting pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled throughout your career. And you never really take that time out to say, wait, where am I going? Am I even in the driver's seat? Is this the direction that I wanted to be in? And I think what ends up happening for a lot of women especially, and but it's not unique to women, you end up in this place many times in your career where you make a lot of money, or you're very successful and you've developed a great reputation, but all of a sudden you look around and you're like, this is just not how I want to be spending all of my time. And so I had a situation, I would say, and around the time I turned 40, where in a very short window of time, over the course of about 48 hours, I had gotten about five different health diagnoses that were game-changing. So much and so overwhelming that I was like, I don't even know which one of these I'm supposed to start researching first. And thankfully, I have come through all of those, but it really helps me see that however much time I get on earth here, I wanted to spend it in those places that I was really passionate about. And one of those things that, that was my passion project was helping uh, fuel women's advancement at work. So for example, at the time I was working at WebMD and I built their global women's leadership network and programming related to that. And it was actually in our first workshop that we led for the kickoff where we brought in a speaker to talk about imposter syndrome. And for me, it was like all the alarm bells were going off saying, wait a second, I thought this was only me. What, what, what's going on here? And so I, I realized that I wanted to spend the time that we had or that I had really helping other people understand what are those internal and external barriers that hold us back from achieving their potential. 
So what is imposter syndrome and, and why do so many women tend to have it? So imposter syndrome is this feeling of being a fake or a fraud or that you're going to be found out that you're just not as good as everyone else that's out there. And it's, it's not just women. It tends to be women more than men, but there's a few different types of, of groups that tend to suffer from it more often. So any marginalized group, so women being one of those, if you're also a racial minority, a disability, if LGBTQ community, it also tends to impact highly intelligent people. So it's actually university professors who have the highest rate of imposter syndrome, who you would think should be so proud and have great self-esteem, but in many cases feel like they're just not as good as everybody else. And there is five different competence types, as it's described, around imposter syndrome. So it can show up and manifest in different ways, whether it's that you feel like you need to be a perfectionist and unless you do everything at 100% or get that A plus that you're a failure. It could be that you are the superhero type where you believe everybody else is the real deal and they're not a fake or a phony, but that you are. And so that you're always looking for that external validation and for other people to say, oh, good job on this. And you're not giving that to yourself. So you tend to run yourself ragged because you take too much onto your plate. And there's you know, a number of others as well. And so what ends up happening is until you can recognize these limiting behaviors and mindset that we all have, it can just really start to consume you. And for me, what happened was I really developed more and more imposter syndrome as I got older. It was once I got into different kinds of jobs and roles where I was surrounded by amazing people like when I first started, I left out one of my careers. I was, uh, I was in management consulting for PricewaterhouseCoopers or PwC now. And I was just surrounded by these highly intelligent people. Everyone focused on data, which was brand new for me at the time. And that's when I started to feel like, oh gosh, I don't fit in. I don't know how I got here. And then I went to Yahoo during the height of, as the internet started to explode and again, surrounded by these incredible people. And it got to the point where my, hu my husband would pick me up from work. He's a news videographer. He was actually my videographer, our first job out of college. We worked together. But he would pick me up when he was done with work at 11.30 p.m. working the, for the 11 o'clock news. And I would still be in the office in Manhattan at Yahoo, but I went in at 7 o'clock in the morning. And on that drive home every night, I would practically be in tears saying, oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. You know, I'm not good enough. And he'd always say, well, have you been fired yet? You've never been fired. Stop worrying about it. And I couldn't. And then I ended up winning this big global award that they had. And I was the only woman of five global winners. And I was pregnant at the time to boot. And uh, my husband said, see, do you finally feel now like you're the real deal? And I said, no, oh my gosh, now I feel even worse than ever because I don't deserve this award. There's so many other people who are better than me. And it just became very consuming for me. And I was always trying to prove my value to everybody else beyond where I needed to. And it just burned myself out completely. So let's talk a little bit more about self-limiting beliefs. So what are were some of your self-limiting beliefs or fears and, and how did you overcome them? I think for me growing up and you know, our narrative of the stories we tell ourselves is informed by so many things from 
parents, to our schools, to our neighborhood and friends that we've had. And of course the experiences. And I actually think that my two closest people in my life who I grew up with, in some ways, not that they would ever want to know this, but, but they really helped to fuel my self-limiting beliefs, not by anything they ever said or did to me, but how I viewed myself in comparison to them. And it's only since I was in my 40s learning about how comparison is the thief of joy, which is absolutely true. But I had a sister who is stunningly beautiful and the nicest person you could ever meet in your life. And then I had my best friend, who was my next door neighbor who grew up with me, who's also gorgeous and this incredible talented singer and hysterically funny. And I thought, well, what am I? Where do, what, what, what am I going to be known for? Like, I'm just sort of average looking and uh, I don't sing and I'm an okay dancer. And, and, and so I think where I prided myself was I was like, oh, okay, I'll be, I'll be the smart one. I'll go to the Ivy League school and I'll also be the one who does everything. So I had, I was a cheerleader. I was a dancer. I was a fitness instructor. I had, you know, 79 jobs. I was president of the high school and the governor's advisory board, like ridiculous. And that was in my head as a child. And then it stayed through with college. It was, okay, I'll be the really busy, involved with everything successful one. And the problem with that is there's no limit to that. There is no, like once you're already doing 17 things, if somebody says, how about you do 19 things? You like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll have to do that. And so I never really stopped and thought about, well, what is it that I do that I love what I'm passionate about or how I want to spend my time? And I will say one of the things that I think is helpful for self-limiting beliefs and, and starting to see, you know, what are those stories we tell ourselves that are actually grounded in data and evidence-based and facts versus what we, you know, what the reality is some of my, my work and travels have taken me to Japan. And that's where I lear I've learned about Ikigai, which is a method that Okinawans use to understand what is their purpose in life or their reason for getting out of bed in the morning. It's one of the reasons that they are the longest living people on earth is they have a, a number of things, but this very strong sense of purpose. And it's by really looking at things across four different dimensions. So what is it they love? What is it that they're good at? What is it that they can get paid for? And what does the world need? I think for all of us, as we start looking at our lives and ourselves and our careers through those four dimensions and get comfortable with finding what's at the heart of that and the confluence of those four dimensions, it allows us to start peeling away these self-limiting beliefs and saying, okay, this is me, this is what's unique, this is what I own. So for me, having this roadmap of Ikigai has been very helpful to really nail down what it is that I do and how I'm spending time. But there's also something else that they do in that culture that I just love and I think is so valuable. And I've only learned about this relatively recently. And it's that in these Okinawan cultures, they build what's called a moai. And a moai is a group of friends who start in many cases, even in childhood, where they make this lifelong commitment to each other to help each other spiritually 
emotionally and even financially, where they get together on a regular basis to have dinner, do fun activities, play cards, whatever it might be, and everybody contributes financially to cover those costs of it. And so then on an ongoing basis, they look at the money that they have for their MOI. And if there's anyone in the group who's having financial hardships, they get that surplus to help them through the difficult times. And I think just that concept of having the team that is surrounding you and, and your, your cheerleaders through life uh, is just such an amazing concept. I love that. Yeah, I feel like what's kind of made me who I am is my, my support network. I mean, not in a financial sense, but definitely in an emotional sense. So I, I do really love that concept. So let's go back to your company. So tell me about it. What do you do? How did it come to be? I had this period of time where I had a number of different health issues all come up at once, as I had mentioned. And I just realized I wanted to take the time and passion and ambition that I had for work where I was running sales strategy and marketing and digital media and put that towards understanding how I could help people unlock their fearlessness and achieve their potential. And so we launched Wet Cement, not because it's concrete or construction, but it's about helping people make their mark, just like when you have actual wet cement on the sidewalk as you walk along and you have this window of time where you can make that impression that you want to last. And so we've worked with a team of behavioral scientists from Wharton to understand what are what we call the five fearless fundamentals that can hold people back from achieving their potential. So confidence, communication, connections, control, and courage. And we have a number of different programs that we do from that include training and keynote speaking and one-on-one coaching and even consulting with organizations or people to help them identify what are those ways across these five different areas that they can map out what their mission is and then go do it and more fearlessly go after what it is that they really want in life, whether it's from a business perspective or even from, you know, on, on the personal front as well. So can you give me an example? One of my favorite sessions that we do is on confidence, as we had talked about, and we really dive into imposter syndrome there, and then also really easy, actionable ways that you can build your confidence on an ongoing basis. And so I'll I'll actually give you one of the little treasures from the training. That is most of the time when we're working with groups, it's generally pretty successful, smart people, I would say, well, I just don't have the time to focus on X, Y, or Z. And so we have them build what we call a confidence catalog, which means every Friday morning, first thing you do is you block out a whopping five minutes to look back on your week and just ask yourself one question. What am I proud of that I've done this week? What have I done that has helped me move my mission forward, whatever that mission is? And then... In that five minutes, you just add that to an ongoing list, your recurring calendar appointment that you have in your phone. And so then with time, that list starts to grow and grow and grow. And then on a monthly basis or even a quarterly basis, you could take a look at that and try and organize it and see, are there categories or themes that start to emerge about what it is that you're really great at or some of the things that maybe you even need to try to solve for or address differently based on what it is that you're doing. 
But if you get to a Friday and there was nothing to add to your confidence catalog, it's that perfect reminder of you may need to plan better for the week ahead so that you don't let that minutia of life, like the email inbox or social media, completely consume you and that you are very proactively making sure that you're putting the big things that matter that never make an appointment for themselves on your calendar proactively into your calendar. That's great. It actually reminds me of the, the rocks thing, like the big rocks, the sand, the pebbles. Absolutely. And actually in one of the workshops on control, that is an exercise that we go through and we have everybody label what are those rocks and, and help them identify how do they start time blocking time for them so that they can actually on a weekly basis be putting time against that. And of the sand, how can they minimize time and time block for those things that are incredibly time consuming, like again, email and social media, so that you can restrict it to certain points of the day and it doesn't just become not just sand, but quicksand, that it's just like you fall into it and you can't really dig yourself out of it. So what does it mean to be fearless? To us at Wetsament, being fearless is really about being afraid of something, but finding a way to still face it and create a plan of action so that you can overcome that potential barrier that might be in your way. So we always like to find inspiration because there's so much of it everywhere in the universe. And one of those uh, inspiring stories that we love is a woman by the name of Ernestine Shepard, who at the age of 55 was laughing at her reflection in the mirror when she went bathing suit shopping with her sister and said, okay, I guess maybe it's time for me to start exercising now. And so her and her sister got a trainer. And then about 15 years later, when unfortunately her sister passed, her sister's last words to her were, keep going with this exercise thing and like take it to the next level. So Ernestine hired a former Mr. Olympia to train her and eight months later, she entered her first bodybuilding competition at the age of 71 and she won it. She's in the Guinness Book of World Records because at 71 years old, it was not a senior bodybuilding competition she won a women's bodybuilding competition. Now at 82, she is still training other people and a personal trainer. And it's just such a reminder. That to me is the ultimate in fearlessness. Of you cannot know what to do or how to do something, but it's just having that inner strength to say, okay, I don't know how to do everything, but I'm not going to let that stop me. I am going to learn. I am going to plan. And then I'm going to put this into practice so I can make it a reality and, and change my life. And you actually, you became a fitness instructor at quite a young age. I think I was probably one of the youngest fitness instructors that was certified. I got certified as, I actually started teaching before it was legal. I started 15 and the week I turned 16, I was certified by AFA, the, the leading organization for that and taught all the way through until I was 30. That's how I put myself through college and my lean days when I was in the TV news industry and did not make a lot of money. I was the breadwinner. I made $7 and 50 cents an hour. My husband was $6 and 75 cents an hour. And, and that taught me a lot about fearlessness, about owning your voice and taking control and keeping people 
energized and empowered when they do not want to be and how to make how to make it fun even when something's a little bit painful at the same time. So I'm very grateful that my sister convinced me when I was 15 that I should take over her job teaching at Lovely Lady Fitness Salon when she was heading back to college. And do you do any research looking at gender differences? One of the things that's very powerful for us is we do a lot of work with both men and women. But then we also, for all the research that we do, we also look at what are those gender differences between us? Because there are absolutely differences that we've seen across the research that we do in terms of what holds us back and how we judge ourselves and how we fear being uncomfortable ourselves or making other people be uncomfortable. And of course, as we all know, that terrible judge that we all tend to have in our heads. And so a lot of the work that we do is for everyone, but then we've also done a lot of work to help with women's empowerment and advancement. And it's just been so rewarding because there is this power and energy when you get a whole bunch of amazing women, regardless of age or stage that they're at, together in the same place, whether it's physically in a room or in a Zoom room, and recognizing that we're not alone and that many of us are doing the same kinds of things that can be self-sabotaging behavior. And in many cases, they look at the other people and they're like, wait, she is amazing. How could she think about that, think that about herself? It's just very eye-opening. And so one of the programs that we launched is an online women's leadership program called Career Excel. It's 18 workshops that address a number of, of different topics and things that can hold us back. And my partner that I created that with is an amazing author and UK Goodwill ambassador. Her name is Hira Ali. She is a Pakistani woman who lives in the UK. And what's so crazy is that we have never met in person. We have spent now more than two and a half years in partnership with this shared mission of trying to help make women more fearless at work and in life and on the schedule that they can do it. And that's why we did this is we said, you know, so much of these kinds of programs, it's you have to be picked by your company to join, or it's during a time of day that if you are a caregiver, whether it's as a mom or for aging parents or anyone else, you just can't get there. So we had this shared mission, but we in fact still have not met yet, even though we've been working together for years. So when, when the pandemic happened and everybody started working from home, for me, it was not that much of a transition because I realized the power of being able to connect with other folks around the world, even just from the comfort of your couch. Can you talk a bit more about some of the research that you do? We first started off when we launched where we did some research getting the perspective of male leaders in terms of what they saw from their perspective, what held the women in their organizations back. And then we did also a second round of research that looked at what were some of the cultural differences between men and women at work. And that really brought up some fascinating things where when women are taking on the caregiver roles, what ends up happening is it ends up being a ding on them. But when men are stepping up to the plate, whether it's to help on the home front or even as an ally, they get like bonus points for doing that. 
And so there's definitely this different perspective and this double standard that people are held to. And then this year we did a deep research around the fearlessness at work. And so to do that, this is part of why I'm so obsessed with what we do, is we did a landmark analysis of all of the research that's out there in the academic literature over the last, you know, 75 years or so that addresses those five fearless fundamentals that I'd mentioned, confidence, communication, connections, control, and courage. And then we looked at four professionals in the U.S. What are some of those things that they do that can hold them back? And we'd actually ask them to compare themselves to people their own age and gender. How good are you at these different things, like negotiating for your best interests, or strategic networking, or advocating for yourselves or presenting to superiors. And what we found time and time again is, first off, most people don't have a ton of confidence and self-belief. But there's across the board, there is a gender gap in terms of how women see themselves. But the reality is, if, if we had to give ourselves a grade, on average, we'd be giving ourselves a C at best which on one hand, it's disappointing to see, but certainly there's a lot of opportunity for growth for all of us. But for me, the most disappointing part is that it's because so many of us go through life without ever learning some of these basic self-leadership skills and ways that we can shift our mindset and ways that we can have an attitude of gratitude or really have that sense of empowerment in our careers that we don't just throw our hands up and say, oh, well, it doesn't make sense or to speak up at work or I can't really impact anything, but that in fact, you can impact things and that if you make a mistake, that's okay. Like don't aim for perfectionism, aim for continual learning and growth. And so once, when we look at these results and we see some of these differences between men and women and just some of the areas where everybody needs help the most, it can be really empowering for people to understand what are some of these small, actionable steps that they can do and ways they could shift their mindset to help them get to where they want to be. That's really interesting. So why don't women speak up in meetings? I know it's feedback I myself have gotten from mentors at various points in my career, and I, I do notice that other women in meetings, they, they tend to only speak up if they feel they have value to add. Why does that happen? I'll break it down into two different areas. So there's the one which is having difficult conversations, which is different than like sharing your most creative and unique ideas. So when it comes to having difficult conversations, what we see is that what women feel the most is that they're actually concerned how uncomfortable they'll feel if people don't like their ideas. And so that internal, again, I like to think about that as like your internal judge is what's holding you back because you don't want to have that feeling of discomfort. Whereas actually when it's having difficult conversations, men are more concerned about making other people feel uncomfortable. So there's, they're also more concerned about their colleagues feelings. So it's, so it's interesting because it's, a little bit of the opposite of what some of the stereotypes would say. But when it comes to sharing creative and unique ideas, what stands out by far the most is that 
women are, we're just really mean to ourselves. And we just believe that our ideas aren't good enough. That's a number one thing that we see for women and that we don't feel confident enough in terms of, of being able to sell those ideas as they get out. And granted, there's a lot of history there where in the workplace, women are interrupted at a rate of three times more than men. And so there is this fear that, well, what if I share this and then I'm just interrupted or somebody else takes credit for it. So I'll just stay quiet and just keep my head down and get my job done. And so once we can look in the mirror and recognize that we, in many cases, are the person that's judging our ideas before anybody else gets a chance to. And let's just put it out there. And, you know, what is the worst that can happen? That's one of the questions we ask. What's the worst thing that can happen? What's the best thing that could happen? And what will likely happen? And if the worst thing that can happen really isn't that bad, well, go for it. Switching gears a little bit, can you tell me about some of the nonprofit work you're involved with? So one of the things that I'm really excited about, and I try and help other organizations learn about as well, is an organization called Working for Women. And what they are, it's a nonprofit that helps to support and certify and make sure that they're only working with other accredited nonprofits that are supporting the economic advancement of women and in a number of different ways. So they try and work with all of these different organizations, not only from a fundraising perspective, but with what I love, which is called skills-based giving. And that is my favorite example of, of what this would mean is rather than if you had an amazing company like, I don't know, Viacom, the CBS Viacom, where you have all these content creators and marketers, rather than just having them picking up garbage in a park or raising money, they would actually use their skills and talents and work together as a team to help an organization like Dress for Success. And which, which helps get women the clothes and shoes that they need in order to make an impact. Or working with an organization like Raising Hope, which is um, through the United Way, where they match up economically disadvantaged women with mentors to help them get out of homeless shelters and get out of incarceration and build their confidence and get on their way. And so... I love that organization. I give 1% of our profit and 1% of our time to working for women. And, and I've had the good fortune of leveraging my skills of leading workshops on confidence for some of these economically disadvantaged women to help them be able to turn their lives around. If you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? It would be to embrace imperfection and know that 80% is good enough. And once I got to 80%, I would just get started and know that it's not perfect and that I will just continue to learn and grow and iterate and evolve with time so that I could get better and better and better and rather than beat myself up for being at 99%. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of the 80% rule, just get going and stop being so hard on yourself. Because for most of us, the reality is we're usually at 95% ready to go and we still feel like it's just not good enough. And that's one of the things that really holds us back is that we, we are good enough and we are enough and we just got to go for it. That's really powerful. Thank you. 
definitely thinking like a lot of what holds me back is fear of failure. You just got to throw yourself off the cliff and know that if you know it's not perfect to start with, then there really is no fear of failure. It's just about the only fear you'd have is just fear of not being able to learn and get better. But it takes away that whole concept because you're saying right off the bat, like this isn't perfect. This isn't done. And so let's get going. Let's, let's take advantage of how fast the move, the, the world moves nowadays and let's just go. I love that. So this is a very stressful and confusing time for people right now. What advice would you give to help people deal with stress and help shift their mindset to stay healthy mentally, emotionally, and physically? So there's two things that, that really stand out for me. So the first is around understanding what is stress to begin with. So we, we assume stress is always a bad thing, but it's not. There's something can be distress, which is a bad stress, or it can be eustress, which is E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, which is good stress. And if we can just shift our mindset to viewing something as that bad stress or as a threat that we don't have the resources to manage it, and instead look at it as eustress, which is good stress and just a challenge that we can address and grow from, there is so much research that shows that that shift in mindset will give you a better outcome of the situation that you're in. You'll release less cortisol and you'll actually increase your blood flow and be able to manage any task or problem ahead of you that much better. And so just saying, okay, wait, is this bad stress or good stress? And I'll give you an example of the bad stress versus good stress because the stimuli can be exactly the same, but it's how you perceive it. So some people view going on a huge roller coaster as stressful or bad stress or going to see a scary movie is bad stress. Whereas other people love it. It's good stress. Yeah. It might get your heart racing a little bit, but it's a lot of fun for them. Actually, what do you think? What do you think about roller coasters? Is that bad stress or good stress for you? I love roller coasters. I hate horror movies. Perfect. We are aligned with each other. So there you go. Well, we'll have to hit uh, Six Flags Amusement Park sometime soon and never see a scary movie together. It's not during Horror Fest. Yeah, that, that's not my thing either. But that's an example of somebody else might completely view it the opposite. And so you can just change that perspective. The other thing I'd say at what we're going through right now is I really like referring to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And if you're not familiar with Maslow's or don't remember it since maybe you learned about it in a college psychology class. It is a framework that was created by Abraham Maslow that talks about that there are these different levels of needs and that until you satisfy a lower level, it's really hard to go towards the higher level needs. Like the lower levels, you have physiological needs like air and water and sleep and sex and excretion. Hence why when everything happened with the pandemic, everybody ran out and stuck up on toilet paper because that is a low level need that you need to be able to reach. And then it goes to safety. And I think that's why with what's happening in the world right now, I truly believe and I'm hopeful that we'll see a change as it relates to systemic racial oppression because you have for the first time, everybody in the US and quite frankly around the world, everybody's at that same level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for once. So you have the black community that is in fear for their lives and for their safety every single day. And the non-black community couldn't relate to that. 
which is why so many people did not get behind Black Lives Matter and truly creating change to make a difference. And, and I'm actually hopeful that the work of people to come together and be more unified will help us just continue to climb right back up that hierarchy of needs because that next level is love and belonging, which is actually happening by people coming together and being open to understanding other people's perspective. It's giving you that sense of community and friendship. And then from there you get to self-esteem and self-actualization, which is the highest of it, which is really about trying to be creative and achieve your potential and all those things that I'm, I'm so passionate about helping other people be able to achieve. That's so great. Thank you. Any other final thoughts? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for creating this podcast and platform. And I love the concept of thriving through adversity and figuring out what's on the other side of it. Because I do think when you talk to incredible people, they've usually had some kind of adversity that has changed them from being on autopilot to saying, you know what, I've, I'm, I'm going to thrive through this and I'm going to take my life to the next level. And so I've been inspired by some of the stories that you've shared on your podcast so far, and I'm honored to be a part of it. So thank you. Thank you so much. So where can people find you to learn more? So we'd love for people to check out our website at wet-cement.com. We are also on social media. So Facebook at Wet Cement Consulting and Twitter at wet underscore cement. And we're always changing. We're on Instagram as well. And so, you know, follow, follow along. And we're always trying to share valuable information and articles that we write. And we also do a series of short snackable videos called Fearless in Five. And it's taking some usually complex challenge that can stop us from achieving our potential and break it down into five easy to implement steps in less than two minutes. So you can definitely check that out in any of those places or on our Wet Cement YouTube channel as well. I love that. Thank you so much. This has been fun. And thank you so much for for having me be a part of this and, and please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. That's all for this episode of The Other Side of Adversity podcast. Hope you've been inspired. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show or leave a review. It's the equivalent of supporting a small business owner. Love fully, live fully, and shine your beautiful light. Thank you.